I'm Don Blair, one of the elders here at Northfield, and it's my privilege to share the word with you this morning. This is our third um, Advent message of our four-part series on Advent. So just to review a little bit, um, two weeks ago Rick looked at Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11. His message was on preparing the way of the Lord, and we were challenged as to how do we prepare for the Lord to come to us. Do we want God's comfort to come our way, like just, Lord, get rid of all my problems? Or are we willing to let it be God's way? And what do we do with Jesus? Do we leave him in the manger or on the cross, in the grave? Or do we let him come to us as our atonement that paid for our sins and brought us salvation? Then last week in the second series on Advent, Doug looked at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, sometimes known as Mary's Song or the Magnificat. We saw that the coming of Jesus fulfills the promise of God's mercy, and with Mary we rejoice. Mary recognized her sin and her need for a Savior, and we need to do the same. God's mercy should bring, a, bring us out of our self-sufficiency and our pride and into reverence for him and faith in him. So today, we're looking at Luke chapter 1 again, this time looking at verses 68 to 79. And the context here is that Elizabeth has just delivered her baby, who will become known, of course, as John the Baptist. And her husband, Zachariah, is suddenly able to speak. After not having been able to speak from the time that God had told him that Elizabeth would bear a child. And so he'd been silent for at least and probably a little bit longer than that. So... Let's begin by reading our text, and we'll start in, um, with verse 67, actually, and that'll be page 1089, I believe, in your pew Bible. So Luke 1, 67 to 79, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we invite you to be here with us this morning, although we know that you've promised that you are, and we thank you for that. Would you just open your word to us? Um, Just be with me as I speak and prepare the hearts of each of us to receive what you would have for us. And we thank you and amen. So before we get into uh, discussing our text, I have a Christmas time confession to make. Some of you young people may not even know what I'm talking about, and so you won't know for sure what to think. I know my grandsons think I'm weird in this regard. Of those of you who do know what I'm talking about, some of you may identify with me. Uh, Others of you may just kind of be puzzled and think, how can a supposedly rational guy like that have a problem like this? My confession is this. I enjoy watching the Hallmark Channel Christmas movies. (laughs) If you've seen... If you've seen very many of them, you know they're basically all the same. Um, All the people are beautiful, the Christmas decorations are over the top, and everything turns out good in the end. The guy and the gal who are usually, either they don't know each other or they're kind of not on very good terms with each other at the beginning, you know, throughout the story the various situations and they have to work together and they eventually get to know each other better and they get to like each other and they fall in love and presumably they live happily ever after. Um, So part of the reason that I like them is that I'm a sucker for happy endings. But let me partially redeem myself in two ways. First, I don't watch very many of them. I might get in three or four between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And secondly, I am fully aware that they're not real life. Because in the movies, you know, it starts out rocky and it ends up being perfect. In real life, it's often the opposite, isn't it? A relationship starts out well and it ends up on the rocks. You know, real life is hard and messy. So why do I tell you this story? Because in a sense, and you've got to give me a little liberty here, in a sense, a Christmas story is a little bit like a Hallmark movie. You know, it starts out pretty messy. It's night. It's dark. I suspect it might have been cold, although we don't really know that. Mary and Joseph have just completed a journey. They're tired and there's no place to stay. And to top it off, Mary starts labor. Not a great situation. And then who shows up to celebrate but a few lowly shepherds? Contrary to all our nativity scenes, the wise men were not there. 
at the time in the stable. But you know, the story ends up, some 30 years later, being the greatest story ever told. For those of us who believe, it's not only a hand, it's life-saving. Okay, so with that, let's get back to our text and, and we'll look at some real life. So our take-home message this morning is that Christ's advent is cause for praise and preparation. I don't think we have a slide on that one, but it's at the top of your notes page in your bulletin. These verses divide nicely into two parts, which will be the basis for my outline today. The first part is praise to God for what he's doing, and the second part is a preparation event. So considering what God is doing, I want to look at four things from the text. Number one, redemption. Number two, salvation from enemies. Number three, remembrance of the covenant. And number four, our response. So Christ's advent causes us to praise God for redemption. In verses 68 and 69, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now you might notice that in the last half of verse 68 and in verse 69 are in the past tense. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and he's raised up a horn of salvation. So why is he using the past tense in praising God for something that hasn't happened yet. So I was puzzled by that, and I, I checked a few commentaries. One commentator said this, and I quote, He speaks by the spirit of prophecy, which calls things that are not as though they were, because absolutely determined by the Most High, and shall be all fulfilled in their season. In other words, a prophet could speak about something that had not yet happened as though it had because God is absolutely reliable and whatever he says is as good as done. On the other hand, perhaps a more simple explanation would be that the past tense could be used here because at the time of this prophecy from Zechariah, Jesus was already conceived. So in a sense, um, he was already here. And from verse 69 is, what is a horn of salvation? According to another commentator, a, and I quote, a horn is a symbol of strength. When the sacred writers, therefore, speak of great strength, they often use the word horn, the word salvation connected here with the word horn means that this strength or this mighty redeemer was able to save. End of quote. On the other hand, it's also possible that this use of the word horn may be taken from the Jewish altar. You may recall the Jewish altar in the original tabernacle had 
um, on each corner, it had a small eminence or projection that was called a horn. And God had provided that to this altar, uh, someone who was being pursued by someone else and was in danger could flee to the altar and take hold of the horns and then he was considered safe from his adversary. So it might have to do with that. But as far as application, how can we apply this? Well, for us today, of course, the verses are quite appropriate. Zechariah, who had not seen the Savior yet, was praising God for the coming fulfillment of his promise of a Savior and a Redeemer. Likewise, we who know the Savior and are living in this time after his first advent should be praising God and thanking him continually for this Redeemer. I've talked before about the need to give thanks in all things, and I know I've said it before, you may be getting tired of it, but you know, I firmly believe that learning to give thanks to God in all things is such an important part of the life of a believer that to neglect it is definitely to the detriment of our having an intimate relationship with God. Interestingly, I ran across this just last week in, a, in an alumni magazine from Olivet University, which comes to my house for Kevin and Mary because they were graduates of Olivet. Came this last week, and I was looking through it a little bit. Um, a retired professor from Olivet has studied for the last 10 years a relatively new academic discipline called positive ecology. And he says it includes such themes as, and listen to these, such themes as contentment, peace of mind, happiness, sharing with others, grace, and gratitude. And he says this, and I quote, when I first started exploring the positive psychology literature, I saw so much in common with Proverbs, Psalms, the fruit of the Spirit, and the message of hope in the Gospels. Of course, the Scripture got there first, but scientific research affirms the message of the Scripture in powerful ways. End of quote. So again, all things includes both those things that seem to be blessings and those things, as Peter wrote to the believers of his day, those various trials that distress us. But the greatest blessing of all is that God has visited us and has accomplished our redemption. So Christ's advent causes us to praise God for a Redeemer. Secondly, his advent also causes us to praise him for salvation from enemies. 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's a quote from Psalm 106, verse 10, where it refers to Israel's escape from Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army, obviously at that point, were the physical enemy of Israel. 
At the time of our text that we're looking at this morning, it was the Romans who were the physical enemy of the Jews. But because we can put this into the context of all of Scripture, and because we know that Zechariah was speaking through the Holy Spirit in verse 67, we can confidently say that this verse is speaking of our spiritual enemies as well as physical ones. Our primary spiritual enemies are sin, death, and Satan. But they're behind everything else with which we struggle, both in the days of Jesus and today. But on a day-to-day and practical basis, what are some of the enemies against which we battle today? You know, I seem to hear the word stress a lot these days. Maybe some of you have used that word. Are we stressed? Yeah, we certainly are, aren't we? Um, Some of us are stressed by overloaded work. You know, the workload is the same, or perhaps it's even increased, and in many cases, the workers are fewer. Some of us are stressed by uncertainty about the future. For example, I like my job, but I'm not sure if it's going to be there for me very much longer. Or, conversely, I don't like my job, but is there anything different available for me, or am I just stuck here? Many of us, our parents or grandparents, we don't like the current trends in public education. But what can we do about it? Is homeschooling an option? Is private school an option? How can we best provide the education that we want our children to have to prepare them for the future and to prepare them to be men and women after God's own heart? Some of you are those children and you're looking at the issue of higher education, whether it's for you or not. It's Will it be beneficial or will it not? These are difficult and stressful decisions. I won't even try to talk about the stress that the pandemic has put on all of us and who knows when that might end. We deal with strained relationships, wayward children, aging parents, grief, and loneliness. So can, can and does Jesus save us from those enemies? Well, he can and he does. During his time on earth, he's fully human as well as fully divine. And scripture tells us that he's been tempted in all things as we are and that he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He might not remove the workload or make our future always rosy, or educate our children, or take away our grief or our loneliness. But he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And he'll always be there as we battle these enemies. And I'll mention that briefly a little bit further on.
You know, those of you who are doing the Advent reading plan, you might remember the entry from this last Wednesday. It was referencing Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, talking about a shoot coming out from the stump of Jesse. And the writer talked about a stump uh, typically being the end of the road for a tree. It's a remnant and a shadow of, of its former self, and it's left there just to rot and decay. But going on, he noted that it may be that this Advent season reaches you in a particularly painful or disorienting time. I know for me personally, it's different from any other Christmas season that I've ever experienced. But as the author said, our Lord is at work, even now, bringing beauty out of ashes and life out of death, with shoots of hope springing forth from the stumps of our broken stories. Thirdly, Christ's advent causes us to praise God for remembering his covenant. In verse 72, we're told another cause for praise is that this coming Redeemer is a fulfillment of God's covenant. You know, this was especially important for the Jews of that day, but it has implications for us as well. We're told in verse 73 that God swore an oath to Abraham. What was that oath? You might remember that it had three parts. Number one, Abraham was promised a people. Number two, he was promised a land. And number three, he was promised that all the nations of the earth through him. Again, we know from the context of all of Scripture that this third part of the covenant was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only did his coming fulfill this covenant, which we now call the Old Covenant, we know that his death ushered in what we know as the New Covenant. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, we read, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the New Covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We know that both the Old and the New Covenants were made with the Jewish people, but in accordance with the part of the Old Covenant that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed, the New Covenant extends to all of us who would put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So what can we take from this? Are we trusting God to keep his promises? You know, our text took place some 4,000 years after the first promise of Jesus, which was in Genesis 3.15. Finally, after 4,000 years, he's now coming. God has kept his promise after all those years. He is 
a covenant-keeping God. And should that not be a tremendous encouragement to us? As we read in Scripture His many promises to us, we can trust that no matter how long it might take, He will promise us. The fourth and final point about what God is doing is that Christ's advent considers us or causes us to consider our response. These things he has given to us that we, in verses 74 and 75, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so the question we need to ask is, are we serving him in those ways? Are we daily seeking to live holy and righteous lives? Or do we have Satan that because our sins are forgiven, therefore we're free to live however we want? You know, Paul anticipated that way of thinking. And he refuted that kind of thinking quite clearly in all of his letters. After laying out often what, Christ, what God has given us in Christ, he would move, Paul would move on to say, now this is how you should live. Christ came, first and foremost, to forgive our sins and to redeem us to God by justifying us. But that's not all there is to it. This whole gift demands a response. And the only right response is to serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. The second portion of our text deals with preparation for the advent. <clears throat> These verses tell us Zechariah's prophecy concerning his newborn son John and how he will prepare the way for the Lord. I'm not going to say a lot about this except to note just a few things that we do know about and then look at how this applies to us. As we see in verses 76 and 77 and in other passages in the New Testament, John's purpose was to go before the Lord and to prepare the way for him. Although we're not told everything about John in this text, we know some very important things from two other passages. Jesus said two very significant things about John in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew 11, verse 11, he said this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen greater than John the Baptist. And then a few verses later in verse 14 of Matthew 11, he says, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. This refers back to a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 where we were told, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Here Jesus was anticipating one of the Jews' arguments regarding that he could not be the Messiah 
because the prophets had said Elijah must return before the coming of the Messiah. Since Elijah had not returned and Jesus was there, therefore Jesus could not be the Messiah. But Jesus countered that because he's saying an effect here in Matthew 11 that Elijah did, in fact, precede him in the person of John the Baptist. <clears throat> we know that John was completely humble. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 28 to 30, John reminded his disciples that he had told them that he was not the Christ and that he, he the Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. John saw it only the glory of Jesus and not his own. <clears throat> By way of application, John came to prepare the way for Christ's first advent. And so the question we can ask ourselves is what are we doing <clears throat> to prepare for his advent into hearts today? He wants hearts of people who by faith in his atoning sacrifice will be justified and redeemed and be given eternal life. What can we do to help prepare the way for him to come into hearts? Well, we can prepare our own heart. You know, we can't give what we don't have, can we? Has Christ come into your heart? Is he your savior? If not, we'd love to talk with you about that after the service. I'll be up here. Matt will be in the office. You could talk with any of the other elders or just talk with a friend. We can share with others what we have in our heart. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, <clears throat> can you tell the story of how that happened to you? If you can, then, you know, it could be that you might be visiting with somebody someday who says something like this, well, I've always lived a good life, and so I figure I'll get to heaven. And you could say something like this, then no, I used to think that way. But let me tell you what happened to me. And then see where the conversation goes from there. And thirdly, we can prepare our lives. Again, looking back at verses 74 and 75 of our text, we read that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. When we live holy and righteous lives, we prepare the way for Jesus to come into the hearts of others. A testimony can lose its impact pretty if it's not accompanied by a life of righteousness and thankfulness for what God's done for us. An unrighteous life hinders the advent of Christ into the lives of others. So in conclusion, 
Christ's advent is cause for praise and preparation. Praise for redemption, for salvation from our enemies, for a covenant-keeping God, and for responding by living righteous lives. And it's cause for preparation. Let's us help prepare for event by helping to prepare unbelieving hearts for him to come into them. I'm going to close in prayer, and the music team will be up then and, and uh, close our service. So would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for all that we know from your word about Jesus Christ, about what he has done, and it, it shows us what you have done for us. We're thankful for a Redeemer. Lord, we're thankful for salvation. We're thankful that you never leave us or forsake us in all of our trials and difficulties. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust that you will keep your promises. And Lord, we just ask, would you help each one of us to, um, just as we interact with others, to do what we can to help prepare unbelieving hearts for you to come into them. And we'll give you all the glory, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.